But only when we identify that, you know, the root cause, we can address it in a proper way. Sometimes we just fix the wrong problem and that's not very helpful. But when we have that self-awareness, when we do this self-inquiry, we can really solve the deep problem rather than, you know, just scratch the surface. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from business leaders and people making positive work-life changes. I'm your host, Adam Baru. We live in a time of busyness. Here in the US, many of us find pride in the symptoms of our overworking, anxiety, burnout, exhaustion. We take these as symbols of being productive, of doing something, building something, being a part of something. In the words of our guest here today, We see busyness as a sign of success and hard work, and we remain busy to hide from the fear of failure. Like it or not, we have become addicted to being busy. We pride ourselves on busyness, and this trait has become a status symbol. This has been especially true of the change makers, of people working towards a mission of social or other change. As someone who fits in this category myself, I can relate personally to change maker burnout. I run two companies, and I have four kids, two of whom are under seven years old. I've fallen easily into the pattern of giving everything I have to my businesses and to my family, and almost zero to my own personal and mental health needs. This culminated last year with the onset of numerous and powerful anxiety attacks. It catches up to us, all of us, and for change makers in particular. We need to replenish ourselves so that we can do the important work we set out to achieve. A previous guest on this podcast described the need to be positively selfish, and it's true. Think of the flight attendant when they inform us that in the case of an emergency, we should put on our oxygen mask first, and then the masks of our children. The same holds true in preventing burnout. If we aren't nourishing ourselves, how will we be able to find the strength and stamina to care for others? Our guest today, Davida Ginter, is the author of Burning Out Won't Get You There, Cultivating Well-Being to successfully lead social change. Hi, Davida, welcome to The Change. Thank you, Adam, pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I wanna start at your childhood. Um, in your book, Burning Out Won't Get You There, you describe a story from your childhood. I believe you were seven or seven and a half or so, and you were preparing with another student for a piano recital. You spoke about how during the performance, you lost your concentration midway through and began to panic, but that the other student, a young boy named Tal, helped you recover and you were able to finish your performance. So can you tell us why you included this story in the intro of your book and how by remaining positive, you achieved a positive result? Yeah. So funny, you know, it's been over 30 years since that moment that I still remember that Mm. vividly and I still smile when I think of it. So it was not so much about the panic attack that did not arrive eventually. It was more about the resourcefulness of that young boy who held me um, and he did not stress himself. He just helped me to put my fingers right on the exact spot where I mm-hmm. should put them. Um, he didn't know my part, but apparently he felt where wow. I should be. And I remember that moment because for me, it was such a powerful lesson about finding your resourcefulness, mm. but also to navigate through stress, hardship, uh, setbacks, and to remain, I don't know if Mm -hmm. positive, but at least calm enough to move on. Yeah, that's important. So what else can you think of um, from your life growing up that helped inform the work that you do today? Well, there are many moments. And um, I think think the thing is that we all go through different journeys. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, while it's a very personal and subjective experience, I keep seeing patterns, identifying Mm -hmm. patterns that are so common to many people. And what I'm seeing here is that even when people struggle, if they can find this um, ability to reach out for support and help, then suddenly we can, again, uh, still... move on, you know, get out of the stuckness. 
um, or the idea that if we suddenly can recall our purpose, our goal to find meaning yeah. in what we do, then again, we can jump over hurdles and those are just part of the signs or, or the abilities and capabilities that help us to prevent burnout and keep pursuing our mission. Yeah. And, and so living in Israel, um, what observations do you have of the tendency to prioritize work and busyness where you live it there in Israel compared to here in America? I see many different examples, but I also see that to some extent... Here in Israel, we actually mimic a lot of what we see in the work culture of corporate America, mm -hmm. which is not a good sign for mm -hmm. either of us. Yeah. I've, I've lived and worked in Scandinavia, in Sweden and in mm -hmm. Norway, and I have team members from Denmark. Uh, I'm collaborating with partners from Germany and the UK. I've been interviewing people from Japan and Singapore and South America, but I keep seeing specifically both in Israel and in the United States, this tendency to just, as you said at the beginning, pride ourselves yeah. for busyness. Mm -hmm. It's not even about being busy. It's about occupying ourselves with this notion of, we need to do a lot and we need to be productive in order that in order to count, you know, to matter. Right. So in that way, we attach our self-worth to the amount of time that we invest in working, basically. Yeah, that's a really important point. And I can relate to that 100 percent, how you describe how we attach our self-worth to this busyness and uh you know, I, I'm not sure why or where that came about, but yeah, it's like when I, when I feel like I've accomplished a lot, it, it gives me a sense of gratification and, you know, I've kind of thought about, you know, why that is like where that comes from, because, you know, there's a lot of other things that can feed into me feeling good, but, um, you know, the, the fact that I'm gaining gratification from the work seems weird. It seems not natural. Well, I, I believe it's more complex than that. I mean, I see your feeling, I can relate. But at the same time, I think it's good to ask ourselves or to question the idea of what is accomplishment? What is that we want to accomplish? So what if I want to accomplish something within my mission, within my work, but also I want to accomplish a state of positive atmosphere in my family? You know, the idea that I'm available for my children, just as I'm available for my mm -hmm. team members and my clients and yeah. so on. So accomplishment could be in many areas and aspects and not just in work. And don't get me wrong. I'm also, I'm, I love working hard. It's sometimes not about working hard or not. Right. I think it's about the way we manage mm -hmm. work and the way that sometimes we prevent ourselves from being flexible and challenge the norms around yeah. working. Um, I want to talk about change makers, um, you know, because it, it could imply some somewhat different meetings. Um, but in your words, if you would describe exactly what a change maker is, at least in how you wrote about it in your book. Yeah, so I see change makers as people who care, but also who made their mission meaningful in a way that they pursue change in many levels within many circles. So any one of us could be a change maker because I can lead change within my own family or my community or in the workplace. Right. So, and by the way, it's also the same uh, as how I see leaders it's really not about the title or the authority. It's about the idea of we can articulate a vision, make other people care too about this vision, and then pursue this meaningful mission. So change makers would be anyone who takes action to uh, move the needle 
right. in the direction that they see as positive in this world. Yeah, perfect. Um, thank you for that. So I'd like to read a quote from your book. We found it ironic that for the sake of promoting a healthy and positive social change, changemakers themselves often work in an unhealthy manner, that many of us sustainability practitioners are often acting in an unsustainable way. So I want to make a confession here um, that I've kind of grappled with this for some time. You know, here on this podcast, I interview people about meditation, leading with compassion, normalizing the mental health conversation and more. And yet I, I've felt this sense of embarrassment because I don't live by all of the ideals that, that we talk about here on this podcast every day. Um, I, I don't really exercise all that often. I don't carve out time for my personal mental health needs. And I'm not always making good self-aware choices. So why do you think change makers can be particularly unskilled in the area of prioritizing our own sustainability? Yeah. Well, I have to start also with a confession. I'm not perfect either, you know. <laughs> I've written this book and I can still find myself sometimes need to remind myself that, hey, I'm not following my own advice. So mm -hmm. that's perfectly fine, perfectly human, right? This is also why we have those support systems that I mentioned earlier to remind us uh, that we can better manage or um, cultivate a healthier routine. But back to your question about why do change makers, why, why are we more likely to mm -hmm. um, approach burnout? Yes. I don't think it's about the skills. I think it's about the mentality. For example, change makers are often people who identify so much with the mission, you know, care so much mm -hmm. that we forget to set boundaries. So boundaries dissolve, for example, between our mission and our personal life, but even more important between our mission and our self-identity. Yeah. So uh, one of the interviews in the book, that's, that's a good example, James from uh, Melbourne, Australia, He's a sustainability practitioner and James shared with me that every time he used to walk into a room mm -hmm. and see something um, which is damaging the environment, say using plastic bottles, he kept thinking, oh, I didn't do enough to save the planet. And mm -hmm. then he started thinking, oh, I failed at my mission. But over time, he started thinking, I am the failure which is a very mm. harmful place to be, right? When we over-identifying with our mission, so every small win or failure, every small mistake even, is it has a highly toll on us, our emotional yeah. well-being, right? Our, our mental well-being. So first is this over-identification. What a word. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, it's uh, change makers often don't see the results of their efforts yeah. in the short term, right? Sometimes we fight for things that we will only be fruitful after a month or years or even decades, maybe not even in our own lifetime. Mm -hmm. And that's okay for a while. But over time, if you keep, you know, pushing and fighting windmills and you don't see results, that could be very frustrating. Um, and, and that's another um, pain point that could yeah. lead to burnout if you don't have the constant reminder why you are doing what you are doing. And sometimes it's about a lack of system support or um, we don't get compensate well enough for our efforts because, hey, it's charity, right? Mm -hmm. So I pay you for this important work. There are many malfunctioning around uh, doing change-making change work. And it's also in the societal level that needs to be changed. Yeah, I mean, you know, for me personally, I, what happens is I, I feel like I'm so just passionate and fully invested in to the work we're doing here, you know, through this podcast and, and through the other podcasts that I produce that you know, I, it's, it's almost like a prioritization issue. I just, I feel like that's more important of my time to dedicate to that than doing yoga and working out and finding time to nourish my own personal needs. Right. 
Um, and then, you know, the other point that you made in terms of, um, I think it was the compensation or the, the seeing the results. I mean, that's, that's something as well. It's like, you know, with this podcast, um, you know, I, I get some emails and some messages over LinkedIn, you know, from time to time with people saying how, how important it is to them. And, and that refuels me, but that's few and far between it's, you know, um, I kind of look for that because it helps me, it rekindles that fire, right? But I think the flaw at least is emotionally investing and waiting for that compensation because that's gonna produce that higher sense of burnout when you don't get that feedback at, at times when you want that feedback, right? Yes, and, and the feedback is important. Um, it's definitely, you know, it, it's all helpful to know where the impact reaches. But at the same time, we cannot be constantly dependent on external approval. Exactly. And we, we need to sustain our lives just as we try to sustain the environment or sometimes even entire communities. Yeah, you're right. Because, I mean, even if I was working on environmental issues, th those are things that you may not see for several years, right? And it's, yeah, to, to kind of make that emotional investment where you know, you only feel that sense of pride or gratification when you see the results. Like we have to learn how to, how to be satisfied in just doing the work and knowing that eventually the results will, will reach people that need to hear it, that message, or, you know, in terms of the environment, just seeing, you know, if you're working and this is an area of work that I used to do, I used to work for the national park service and I used to work in a, in an office where the team was dedicated towards restoring native plant habitat in the Marin headlands in the San Francisco area. But you don't see the results of that right away. It takes several seasons, um, several years to see that. And definitely an important uh, um, comment to just make sure to not have that emotional capital invested in the seeing the results, right? Yeah. So I follow a, a podcast um, hosted by a woman named Jessa Reed. And she relates um, to how people's energy levels can be perceived kind of like a video game where you can see your character's health level as they run around on the screen. And often we forget that we have somewhat of a health meter that will deplete the more we ignore recharging our own batteries. And I'd like to make another quote um, from your book. It's unbearable to keep working towards your meaningful cause without recreation and inspiration. And on top of it all, your physical and emotional health are decreasing when you do not allow yourself the time to rest and recharge your battery. So I'd like to know about some of the ways in which you recharge your battery. Personally, and um, this is what I love about it, it's very personal, right? If I would host now a circle, as I've done many times, we will hear dozens of different answers so exactly yeah it's it's really important to note first that there's no one size that fits all what mm -hmm. suits me will not necessarily suit you um and and precisely it's yeah. also it's it, it's also good to know i mean i think sometimes i see how harmful it is when people try to blindly follow others advice and practices so that's just to put it out there mm -hmm. what personally helps me to recharge or rejuvenate is first and foremost always to be outside. I'm an outdoors person, mm -hmm. but I find myself often working indoors, um, either when I facilitate, you know, or teach, or when I work with within companies. We do a lot of um, training in companies, so I just mm -hmm. find myself in an office, which is amazing. A lot of connections, people, but then I just want to be outside, you know. Yeah get the fresh air. And, uh, so I like walking and I live close to nature. So mm -hmm. I find myself almost daily, even just for 20 minutes walking outside. Um, another thing, which is really, I found so helpful for me is to write. I'm journaling and I'm mm -hmm. writing and I'm authoring, even if it will not see other eyes uh, beyond my, my own eyes, but it's, mm -hmm just helpful for me to to pour onto the page my thoughts it's like a processing um mechanism for me 
Yeah. And I've been I've been suffering from um sleepless nights for mm. many many years okay. and when I discover that I can journal my thoughts, write down my my stories and and you know inner conversations before I go to bed, uh I found it much easier to fall asleep and actually sleep the entire yeah. night because I can stop the rumination mm-hmm. going up there in my head. And lastly is connecting with people. Even it could be a coffee with one friend that I really love, or it could be hanging out in a crowd of people. I just love the uh, personal interaction and knowing that um, we are not alone uh, on this planet. You know, we are part of something bigger. So it's always helpful for me to have, especially if those are meaningful dialogues. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and, you know, going back to Jessa Reed's podcast that I referenced earlier, um, one of the kind of a challenge she put out there, she, you know, she talked, I think she was relating to her own experience um, about, you know, not even really knowing what what recharges her. And so I, I think she offered a challenge out there um, to her audience to kind of sit, you know, sit with a journal or sit with a, a pen and paper and actually think about what what are the things that recharge me so i actually i did that i i took that challenge and it wasn't easy i mean i remember um this was at a time where you know in my intro i talked about these anxiety attacks that i was having and i was starting to have a lot of self-awareness and really you know recognize a lot of things that uh i i wasn't really doing to take care of myself and so you know i was at a time where i really for years haven't ever focused on my needs, right? So I sat there with the with the pen and paper and I tried to write down five things that recharge me. And I sat there for a while and I, I couldn't even think of one. It was it was really eye-opening and it was a little alarming to be honest. Um mm-hmm. but finally the ans- the more I sat with it, the answer started to come with me. And I, I really appreciate that you said yes, it's definitely going to be different for everybody. Um, so, so thank you for, for pointing out that caveat, you know, for me, what I found, you know, I, I really like reading. I go, I've gone for, you know, certain periods of time, I'll be really into reading and I'll make sure to carve out the time to do it. And I feel good. And, you know, often I I'll go like at my office here, um, there's a nice little park across the street. So I, I go to the park and I sit out in the sunshine and, um, and I read and it feels good. And so, It, it was interesting that I, I just, it took me a while to even make that connection. So I definitely challenge people, you know, here listening to, you know, try to, try to take that challenge, try to take this exercise, what, you know, find out what inspires each of you and, and yeah, it's going to be different. Yeah. What's, what's the, the best book you've read recently? Um, you know, I, I really love, um, so probably I'm going to say the four winds, um, by Kristen Hanna. I love mm-hmm. I really like historical fictions and the four winds um, is a, is a period piece during the dust bowl. And, you know, it's a story of struggle and um, you know, people and families trying to stay together through really challenging situations. And when I'm reading these types of books, I, it, it makes me get out of this comfort zone, you know, that, that we live in in today's society where you know we're afforded a lot of safety um another well the way i knew about kristen hannah um before that book the four winds was she wrote a book called the nightingale and you know books about holo- holocaust survivors mm-hmm. are probably my number one place of passion and i've i've really i try to explore that within myself like what is it about these types of stories that um that change me that move me that give me that inspiration and i you know i i think what it is is again is about these stories of struggle about you know what people have done and you know could i could i have the strength to overcome what people have gone through in history it's you know it, it, these types of stories are always really moving to me yeah definitely um you know speaking of stories i'd like to go back to the story about the piano recital and <laughs> 
Um, you know, you summed it up by saying what got you through that experience was the power of positive thinking and um, just that remaining calm. And you talk about the phenomenon of emotional contagion in your book. So can you describe what you meant by this term? Yeah, so emotional contagion is the idea that um, when we experience an emotion that it has a spillover, it has the effect that we can experience many similar emotions. So I will never classify them as negative or positive. I don't see emotions that way. Mm, right. And I do think we should give room, allow, allow all the range of emotions to be fully experienced. And that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we need to, you know, go angry all the time and of course turn violent, but it means that we need to sit with it for even a moment and explore what's going on there. But just to say that emotional contagion is, all right, so we, we allow room for a certain emotion and it could uh, affect a range of emotions within us. But it's also about how do we react to other people who we interact with and their emotional exhibition, if to put it mm -hmm. like that. And that is something that we see a lot when we work, for example, with groups or teams, is that oftentimes a person, especially if they're very dominant, will walk into the room and they will display a certain behavior, but also their emotions naturally, and it will mm -hmm. affect the entire group. Yeah. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is again, that we want to give room for all types of emotions, but when we learn how to respond instead of react, mm. that means that we can absolutely contribute to a more calm environment in the setting that we operate within. So sometimes mm -hmm. people don't even notice and they will walk in with all their, not just anger, but cynicism and, you know, fear and everything. There is um, this, you know, huge um, judgment even. So judgment mm -hmm. is not an emotion, but it could be driven from very hard emotions. And that will affect the group so significantly and not in a good way. And this mm -hmm. is something we want to pay attention to. Yeah. Having that self-awareness. Um, exactly. and, yeah. And for me, it's like, you know, I'm almost 50 years old and I, I really don't think that I had a strong sense of self-awareness until I started going through, you know, mindfulness work last year, working with my coach, Kristen Taylor, um, as well as, you know, just like I, that story of when I sat down, with with the pen and paper and tried to think about what refuels me it's it's when you can start building the tools of self-awareness i mean that's where when you can start to recognize where your emotions are what those mean the feelings of burnout the feelings of stress and anxiety I, you know without that self-awareness we just kind of go through those experiences and and perhaps we have an emotional reaction but when you have that level of self-awareness, then you're able to respond versus react because you can kind of take a step back or be quiet with that emotion or that thought for a moment and think, hmm, where's this coming from? Like, exactly. okay, I get it. This is coming from this. And so here's how I can, I can respond to that in a positive exactly. way. And, and this is so relevant to burnout prevention because we haven't mentioned this yet, but Burnout and stress are not the same. Burnout is chronic stress that has not been successfully managed, but those are not the same. So when mm. we experience stress, it's not a negative thing. We can, you know, respond to that quite well. When we don't pay attention, when we don't manage stress well, that could become chronic. And then, you know, we hit the wall of burnout. Mm -hmm. That self-inquiry, what you just mentioned to identify the root causes is so important because we can suddenly notice, all right, so I'm not really stressed about work. I'm stressed about a specific interaction that mm -hmm. I just had or a future interaction that I'm concerned. How will it go? But only when we identify that, you know, the root cause, we can address it in a proper way. Sometimes we just fix the wrong problem 
And that's not very helpful, but when we have that self-awareness, when we do this self-inquiry, we can really solve the deep problem rather than, you know, just scratch the surface. You gave me a perfect segue into my next question, which is um, regarding part two of your book, which um, deals specifically with burnout. There's probably a number of different signs of burnout, many of which um, you relate to signs of depression. So can you tell us a bit more about how we can identify if we are feeling burnout versus stress or anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there, there's kind of a range of signs, but there are basically three main symptoms. And those are, first of all, is exhaustion. And, you know, the feeling that we're not just randomly tired, but we are constantly, we constantly feel tired, exhausted. We feel this mm -hmm. fatigue. And this is, by the way, emotional exhaustion mm -hmm. being translated into physical tiredness. Right. And the second symptom is that we start to feel negative and cynical and judgmental towards our mission, our work, our boss, our colleagues. I know every one of us have we have those days, right? When we get up, oh, this person is so annoying, that boss is not, you know, they don't value my efforts. But we're not talking about that. We are talking about this feeling that we start to feel every day about our work and mission. So that's a red flag there. And the third sign is reduced self-efficacy. So yeah, we feel less productive, but we also start to feel uh, that our worth diminishes, basically. So mm -hmm. we just feel that we cannot contribute well to the mission. Yeah. I'd like to um, go back to, you know, referencing a quote from your book, because I think it perfectly conveys how burnout occurs. As a metaphor for the draining of energy, burnout refers to the smothering of a fire or the extinguishing of a candle. It implies that a fire was once burning, but the fire cannot continue burning brightly unless there are sufficient resources that keep being replenished. And, you know, I've mentioned this before, but I've fallen into the habit numerous times of complaining about the lack of time I have available to me and in order to replenish my resources. And, you know, when we break it down to such a simple concept of a fire needing resources like heat, oxygen, and combustible material continue burning, it, it becomes very clear that if we want to sustain our fire over a long period of time, we have to feed the fire within us. So what are some thoughts you have about how we can begin to shift our thinking as a society as a whole, where we give emphasis and priority to that replenishment? How can we make prioritizing our personal, physical, and mental needs the norm? That's a deep question, as it, as it should be, because I believe that we need to treat the issue in a systemic and holistic way. So I'm, I'm appreciative that you asked that on the societal level, because it's not preventing burnout could not be just an individual question or responsibility. Mm -hmm. We are part of systems, many systems. And, uh, you know, you and I can do all the work in the world, but if tomorrow morning we are going back to the very same system, organization, institution, family, whatever it is, that contributed to our feeling of burnout, then we only did half the work. Yeah. So first of all, it has to be a systemic change, you know. Secondly, what can be done differently to challenge the definition of success would be a great start. How do mm -hmm. we measure success? Yeah. Is this about productivity? Is this about, you know, just producing more, bringing results, hit the quota, meet the KPIs, or is there more to it? You can imagine that I, I believe there's more to it, but you know, that's, that's not an easy question for organizations, for example, mm -hmm. because they want to say, oh, we care about the people and we are human centered. But if th at the end of the day, you just measure the numbers, how many hours did that person work, you know, results mm -hmm. rather than measuring other important aspects, then Again, we just, we, we won the fight. We lost the person. Yeah. 
So yeah, that's that's a very important first step to, to challenge the definition of success. But there's many more. There's, you know, questions around flexibility, changing how we work and allow flexibility and allow different types of interactions and, you know, shift the idea of strict hierarchy and involving the people. Mm-hmm. You know, we think that people are burnt out because they overwork, but that's not entirely true. That's not even the number one cause. Most of the people are burnt out because they feel that no one listens or value their opinion. They don't feel belong. And, you know, they just don't feel heard and seen. So we can start by seeing the people and their efforts. And even if we ask them for their opinion and then we do nothing with it, you know, we don't... Uh, take right. that into consideration. That's not good enough. And we need to, you know, we need to put it out there. We need to say it out and loud, even if it's uncomfortable right. to hear this truth. Yeah. So, you know, besides um, being a host of this podcast, uh, kind of my, my main job, if you will, is um, I'm the CEO of a consulting agency in the, in the tech industry. And, you know, we're a professional services organization mainly, which means that we have team members that do work for our clients and they they bill by the hour, right? And so one of the uniform measurements in a professional services organization is this concept of utilization. How for each for each resource, how much are they billing versus their total time worked over the week, right? So for example, if you bill 32 hours out of a 40 hour work week, I'm not going to do the math, but I think that's like 75% utilization. And it's like the main measurement. And I'll admit it's, you know, at my company, it's, you know, people's bonuses are kind of built around that Mm -hmm. model. And I've grappled with this a lot. And, um, you know, part of the reason why I, I started hosting this podcast is, you know, as a business leader, as a CEO, exploring these topics and, and challenging ourselves as business leaders to think of new ways in which we can, you know, ultimately, you know, our re- our team does need to build. That's how we obtain revenue, and mm-hmm. and that's how I pay my team, right? But perhaps the concept of you know taking the main measurement focus against this utilization, I feel like it really does some negative harm. Um, to the a, a company culture, if you will, because then there becomes a fear if you're not meeting your utilization targets, right? So, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, you know talk about the pandemic a little bit. Um, you know how with the beginning of the pandemic, there was such a shift to working from home, and you know this really impacted this concept of work life balance. Um, but in particular, I want to I want to focus on change makers who almost never really shut off the mental energy focused on the mission and how the pandemic has caused you know such a massive shift in the workforce where more and more people are becoming permanent remote remote workers. So how do you think the pandemic has impacted this whole work life balance, you know, for us in this group as change makers? And what are some things we could do to manage that blur between work and home? I think in a way, and my book uh, was written before the pandemic, so I keep writing there about work-life balance, but in a way, after COVID or during COVID, to be more accurate, the term work-life balance kind of lost its its meaning. Mm -hmm. And currently I prefer to treat it as a work-life harmony or work-life synergy or work-life integration. They, they could all fit because boundaries have dissolved. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's no way around it. And I prefer now to treat balance in a new way, in a different way. And instead of have this artificial separation between work and life, which almost doesn't exist anyway, to find a different kind of balance, which I sometimes call personally um, tailored balance or something like that, which is around okay. needs. So how can we balance our routines, 
in a way that will meet our own needs. So if I'm working all, as I mentioned before, if I'm working all day long in front of my screen, I will balance that by being outside after work. Mm-hmm. If I work alone, I will meet people to balance that. If I work in a noisy and hectic environment, I might want to balance that with some quiet time, mm-hmm. you know, to reflect or whatever it is. So it's more about finding the balance that really serves us and helps us meet our needs and build a more nourishing routine. And I think it was a huge realization for people during COVID that it's not egoistic to think about our own needs and to take care of ourselves because we want to thrive rather than just, you know, survive in this world and keep chasing our own tail in a way. Absolutely. You know, a previous guest, uh, her name's Crystal Bauer, um, that I had on the podcast, um, used the same term, the work-life harmony that you used. And I, I think it perfectly illustrates, um, at least, you know, why that's perhaps a more accurate term than, than, you know, trying to understand work-life balance instead, because when you think of balance, it's like almost like a scale where, it's this constant battle to keep the scale in balance. And so think about like the, you know, the tension, the anxiety that is produced by trying to maintain this balance. But, you know, the, the way that Crystal described it with work-life harmony is, you know, instead of always just spending our mental energy trying to keep this balance even, you know, allow allow this blur allow things to cross into each other um but at the end of the day find meaning find purpose and find value because that's that's the thing that is going to be what nourishes us and you know avoids that anxiety around you know always having to keep the balance even yes and when we need to be creative there in finding the solutions that work for us creativity it's not just about knowing how to sketch well <laughs> It's mm-hmm. also about finding creative solutions to the new situations. And we are all, humanity is now in a new situation. We really need to harness creative thinking at the moment. Yeah. You know, in chapter seven, you introduce the idea that leaders often feel the need to hide or bottle up their feelings and honesty, that they especially feel the need to hide stress and turbulence from their own colleagues and employees. And, you know, for me, looking back, I can point to numerous examples of this in my own leadership. You know, I I attribute at least my own um, experiences with that to imposter syndrome quite a bit where, you know, I thought I had to, like, present myself a certain way. But, you know, why do you think in general um, we do this as change makers or leaders? Uh, What You know, why, in your opinion, do, do we feel like we have to not be truthful or authentic to ourselves? I believe we do this, and there are many reasons, and some of those are cultural and social. But oftentimes it's because we are afraid to be perceived as weak. Right. right? So leaders or people who are now in charge, they're afraid that if they will show the slightest sign of vulnerability or hesitation or doubt, that will be perceived as indecisiveness, as if we are weak and if we can't, you know, control the situation, why are we even leading? And that was a lesson that I personally had to learn in the sense that I was a a military officer um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, released from the army, went into the corporate world and I thought I had to be tough. You know, I had to kind of hide my emotions for people to respect me when I start um, doing um, management positions Mm -hmm. and roles. And it took me many years to understand that people will still respect me, maybe even more, because then they could relate if I will actually show what I feel in the right setting, you know, in the appropriate moment and everything, but still there's a way to do it, be vulnerable, be real, be authentic, and people will still trust your leadership because you are relatable and you are human. Exactly. I And I've shared on this podcast kind of my own experiences with that. I, I 
I've talked about how growing up, I've always been a highly sensitive person. Um, I've always had a very heightened sense of empathy and emotion and in business myself, um, especially in the tech industry where there's a lot of ego at play, I've felt I've had to be someone else and really hide my true sensitivity, thinking that that was a weakness, that was a character flaw in myself. And it really wasn't until last year and I started to do the work with my coach where I I recognized, you know, what was I doing this whole time? Really looking at that as my weakness when truly now, I think it's my number one superpower. I think it's my unique makeup um, and and why I'm here on this mission. And, um, you know, I, another, another thing, and I've touched on it in my intro, my own painful experiences with anxiety and negative self-talk. You know, I think much of my own healing in the last year or so has been in sharing my own story and demonstrating that being vulnerable is okay. You know, in general, we easily assume people will stop liking us or admiring us if we share any story of failure. And I, you gave me the perfect segue. I wanna make one more quote from your book if I can. The continual attempt to appear successful and mistake-proof is a massive time and energy waster. While talking openly and authentically about what you have been experiencing is a much more effective way to sustain your motivation and grow even stronger. Would you mind sharing examples in your own life of you know where you've grown stronger through opening yourself up and being vulnerable? Just last week, <laughs> I stood on stage and I I was asked to give a ten minutes talk uh, mm-hmm. TED style, and originally I've written something about burnout and everything and the coach, the speaking coach who worked with all the speakers pulled me aside afterwards, after the first rehearsals. And she said, you know, you've been very professional and everything, but you're not bringing yourself. Mm. I want to hear you. Where do you struggle? Where do, and, and, you know, I went, I, I drove home thinking about everything she said. The first reaction was resistance. What is she even mm. talking about? Right. Right. And then uh, I slept on it. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. I woke up the next morning and it suddenly hit me. First of all, she's right. I, I mm-hmm. need to give something of myself, from myself, to put myself out there. And secondly, it's, it's again about the question of being relatable. So eventually I delivered the talk while the entire two to three minutes even uh, which is a big piece. So out of t- a 10 minutes talk was mm-hmm. about a huge failure, huge mistake I've made in uh, one of my first jobs as a news editor. Uh, we almost got sued for that, the newspaper. Mm. They forgave me, everything was okay. <laughs> um, but it taught me a lot. First of all, the mistake and, you know, going through that. And, but also last week taught me about, you know, standing on stage in front of live audience, talk about my failure and share what have I learned from that. And, and that mm-hmm. was a powerful moment for me. I don't know about the audience. I felt empowered mm. by sharing this. It sounded, it sounds to me like you responded instead of reacting. Yeah, in a way that's, yeah. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, as we close here today, I'd like to change our focus away from your book and instead talk about um, the work that you do today. Um, Tell us where the ideas for Enkindle Global and Be the Change came from and what each of these organizations focuses on. Be the Change was the first uh, business venture that I founded. I came back from studying in Sweden, came back to Israel and I wanted to support leaders in driving social change, you know, being the uh, catalyzers. So I started with a change, which was uh, we delivered mini programs and workshops for entrepreneurs and, and leaders and sometimes even activists who needed help to turn their vision into reality. Mm-hmm. And that's also where I noticed change makers going through burnout and this is how in Kindle Global eventually was born which is the current main mission and my and ours mm-hmm. business venture 
And basically in Kingdom Global, which started from working with individuals, we brought in people to go through the workshops. It expanded to be working with systems, organizations of different types, from nonprofits to companies, sometimes, you know, corporates, really different sizes and, and, and character. And our main work is to facilitate processes. So we walk in. Usually my first question to the CEO, do you have a marketing strategy in place? And you said, yes. Do you have a financial strategy? Of course. Then what about a well-being strategy? And they go, okay. We did not think about that because, mm. you know, who think yeah. about these things? So this is what we do. We facilitate a process that helps them build a well-being strategy and then implement that. So how do we really take care of people's well-being, motivation, engagement, well-being, stress management, all those sort of issues, resilience within the workplace, but build upon a strategy. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are workshops and trainings, but this is the core. This is the main idea of what we do to shift the culture towards well-being. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so finally, where can people find out about you and get connected? Oh, my personal website would be the perfect uh, address, davidaginter.com. And I'm also very active on LinkedIn. I believe that's where we met. Mm-hmm. And... People can find me on LinkedIn, Davida Ginter, and I'm usually very responsive because I like conversations, as you noticed already. Well, thank you for today's conversation. You know, this has been really meaningful to me. Um, as I've said, I've resonated with, uh, you know, your message and your work very personally. So thank you, you know, for, for the work that you've been doing to help recognize and prevent burnout. And, thank you. you know, I've yeah. learned a lot today. Um, you know, and, and how to challenge myself and think about ways to keep my own fire burning. So thank you for being my guest here today. Thank you for the invitation. Davida Ginter is the co-founder and CEO of Enkindle Global, an organization that leads global efforts to eliminate burnout. She's the author of the book, Burning Out Won't Get You There, which features interviews and conversations with worldwide leaders and change makers. She's also the founder of the sustainability center, Be The Change, and has been recognized internationally for her work in the field of values-based communication for sustainability. You can read more about Davida on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about burnout, or if you'd like to tell us what you think about our podcast, please send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more.